Hello everyone, welcome to our Saturday broadcast. We're here, as usual, to answer questions you may have about your practice in the practice of mindfulness and vipassana. Questions about applying the practice to your life. Questions about how to use the practice. bring peace, happiness, and freedom from suffering in your life. If you have any questions, just post them in the chat. Post questions at any time. For the first 15 minutes, we will conduct silent meditation to just give 15 minutes to collect questions that people come in who may be joining late. And to give us a chance, everyone, to clear the mind. Just make it a wholesome experience all around. So again, if you have questions, post them in the chat. Once you've posted your question, if you don't have any questions, I'll just spend the first 15 minutes in silent meditation, walking or sitting, or walking and sitting. We'll be back at 15 minutes after the hour to start answering.
All right, that's 15 minutes. We're back. So from here on, we'd ask that the chat be reserved for questions only. Again, if you have questions, go ahead and post them. If you don't have questions, once you've asked your question, just sit back, be mindful, and listen. Thank you, Bhante. We do have questions. Does this teaching allow for people to be happy in a mundane way? I've been eating in moderation for some time, which is uncommon, and felt happy. I reflected that maybe it isn't beneficial for me to feel this happiness, because it is unpermanent and unsatisfactory. Well, those two aren't contradictory or, or in conflict at all. Um, so the, the implication in, in why you might be asking this is because you're wondering whether it's okay to attach to the happiness. You have to include that here in your, your uh, calculus or your, your the equation. Because yes, tech, just strictly going by what your questions are, being happy is, is innocent. So the first part is, the answer is yes. There's nothing problematic about, well, there's nothing unwholesome about being happy at all. When, But the second part of your question, when you reflect and say it maybe isn't beneficial, going literally by what you're saying or what you're, you're wondering, it also isn't beneficial. And that's important. Happiness is not, harmful but it's also not beneficial you can say it's problematic now that's probably too strong it's uh, a, a potentially problematic because you might like it and that's where the issue is not with happiness some happiness is so pure that there is no opportunity for liking now that's rare but there's uh, meditative happinesses where you can be just happy and be very mindful so you're aware that you're happy you say to yourself happy happy but most happiness is mundane worldly type of happinesses um, there, there's a strong potential for uh, for liking of course we like being happy and that liking is problematic because that sets you up for disappointment it creates addiction and leads to needing liking needs to wanting leads to needing and creates a dependency and that's sort of the sort of thing we're we're looking to understand but honestly you don't have to worry about such things you just make sure you're mindful and if you're mindful you'll see all of this you'll see that happiness is really innocent but also useless so there so any any meaning you might put into it like oh this is good something's good that that I'm feeling so happy the liking will arise. There can also be identification. There can be conceit. Oh, my practice is so good. I'm such a good meditator because I'm feeling happy. And conceit is dangerous, of course, as well. Conceit leads to lots of problems. Those are the things you, you have to worry about, or you have to be aware of. Not worry about. Don't worry about. All you have to concern yourself with is being mindful. And if you're mindful, you'll see the good and the bad and the useful and the useless.
When I sit to meditate, I keep thinking, I have no idea what I'm doing anymore. How do I refocus? What intentions should I try generating? Well, I don't know if you're doing walking meditation as well. I'd recommend doing walking first. That can sometimes help because it's more a little more concrete than sitting. So it might help you to get a better state of mind where you're more concretely aware of uh, or connected with something that's happening. But ultimately, mindfulness is uh, just about that. It's about making the effort, which might be lacking, to um, clarify your experience. So you're creating clear vision. You're trying to see more clearly because our minds are often very muddled and it's unclear. So you create this clarity. That's the sort of intention you should have to create clarity and be clearly aware of the experiences as they arise and as they cease. I don't know if you read our booklet or if you've done our at-home course, but those are sort of the steps that you should take in this tradition in this community. I feel like mindfulness has made my life worse. I know no matter how successful, I will never be satisfied. I feel less motivated in my career. Advice for lay people who need to work for their family? So mindfulness has given you knowledge. Would it be better to not know that? Would you be better off if you didn't know that truth? Like assuming your second sentence is true. Let's not, not judge it yet. But assuming that mindfulness has given you that knowledge and that that knowledge is true, of course it wouldn't be better to not know that truth, right? Because if you didn't know that truth, you would be inclined to make mis make the mistake of trying to be whatever the word successful means and i'm assuming you just mean successful in 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 a worldly sense um this of course leads to feeling less motivated in something that is unsatisfying i.e. your career now the point point is that on well, the advice to give is that like many things including meditation we often approach or our ordinary, unenlightened, uneducated, let's say, uneducated in a Buddhist sense, way of approaching things or reason for doing things is, is often wrong. So your reason for engaging in a career or reasons are often mistaken. It's not the thing that you're doing it's the reasons for or the goals i guess is a better way of putting it you know, your goals in a career what are your goals in a career and your goals are often to be rich to be successful be powerful even to be famous even all of these things um, to be happy even you, you're, you're trying to find happiness in in success because you'll get all this pleasure from all this sensual um, sensual uh, acquisitions from all the money that you make, right? So our goals are often based on a lot of shaky or or misguided in uh, directions. So 
you still see, and mindfulness should help you to see, that there is need to have a career. You just have to reorient yourself, not around your desire to work, but around the need to work. And that can be disconcerting. Meditation is the same, or can be the same. Many people will be discouraged when they find they just don't want to meditate, don't want to meditate the way they used to. In the beginning, they're really keen and excited about it, but that's not what will sustain you. That sort of attitude is a similar thing that's happening here, the attitude towards your job. Now, Now that you don't have that keenness to work, you're, you feel um, at a loss. How am I going to work? And the answer is quite simple. You work because you know the necessity of it. You know the value of it. You know the true value of it, which is probably a lot less than you thought before you were mindful, before you thought work had such great value. Now you see it has a very limited value, but value nonetheless, an important value, because it keeps you and your family alive and and. Uh, above the poverty line or, or out of poverty and so you do it for that reason it's it's disenchanting it's sobering uh, and it can be quite unpleasant but one thing about unpleasantness is that unpleasantness doesn't have to be suffering you can do things that other people would suffer from and still be at peace and that's a really important goal is to be at peace even when you're doing something that is um, without any pleasure, without any uh, positive feelings. So you do your work, you try to ignore any kind of drama or emotional entanglement, and you just do it as mindfully as you can. You find that sometimes your career changes and simplifies, and you don't make as much money or are as successful as you used to be, but you also find more peace and happiness because you realize that it wasn't coming from such things. So you just have to reorient yourself. I mean, really, just whatever they say, like pull, uh, grit your teeth, grit and bear it, or whatever they say. Uh, just be patient with it. You know, mindfulness should help you to be more at peace when you work without having to enjoy it per se. You're, you have peace that it's not the enjoyment of the thing that you're doing, it's the happiness unrelated or independent of whatever it is that you're doing. I can never concentrate, neither while studying nor meditating. My mind is a complete wreck. Where should I start? I am new to meditation. Well, I would recommend to dissuade yourself, no, dissuade this, whatever the word is, you should um, rid yourself of this idea that somehow you have to concentrate. Concentration is one of the things that come along with many other good qualities in the practice of meditation. But try and focus more on seeing and having a, a perspective on the chaos. So I don't know if you've read our booklet on how to meditate. That's a good place to start. We have an at-home course that you can take for free. Maybe uh, consider to try that. But um, disabuse yourself of this idea that concentration is something you need to start meditating. 
The beginnings of mindfulness meditation can be quite chaotic, and that's not a bad thing. That's not a bad sign. It's um, a sign of of uh, um, a mistaken perspective or a problematic perspective because you suffer from the uh, chaos. But the chaos doesn't doesn't necessitate suffering. It's not it's not necessary for you to suffer. You can be at peace even when your mind is chaotic. And that's a, a better way of looking at it than trying to fix your situation, trying to not experience chaos or have a calm and peaceful experience. Try and have a peaceful experience even in the chaos. And mindfulness should help you do that if you learn how to practice. Just read the booklet and try to do what it says. It's a good start. I have trouble with indulging in entertainment. I try to be mindful during these times, but I find myself repeating the same cycles. I would rather spend my time in meditation. Do you have any advice? Well, part of the wisdom that comes from mindfulness is seeing the repetition, seeing the incessant nature of these cycles. So it's it's uh, I mean that you that you come to ask this question is a sign of growth. It's a sign of inclination. And really, you just need to be patient. I mean, indulging in entertainment is um, is a very subtle sort of suffering, and it's hard to see the suffering directly. It takes time. Um, if you if you really are keen to see results, then you really need to do intensive practice. You need to accelerate your growth. You know, find a way to do an intensive course in mindfulness practice. That would be the best advice. Don't know if you've done our at-home course. Uh, maybe consider starting there. But really, things like entertainment are—you really have to go intensive to to if if you want quicker results. Then you know it could take lifetimes to free yourself from that. You have to think think in those sorts of terms. This is not a simple thing that you're asking. It's not something that you can just turn off because it's very hard to see that entertainment is unpleasant unless you do some really intensive life-changing meditation otherwise it's something you have to be patient with and appreciate that you're learning and that you're realigning yourself through the mindfulness practice why is it that we can feel burned out after a meditation session Um, well, there's kind of a conceptualization going on there, and it, it can come about because of cons some conceptualization during your practice. Like your practice may have been clingy, and if it's clingy, then you're, you're going to suffer from the clinging. So there can be clinging to lots of things, trying trying very hard to make your meditation this way or that. And uh, it's not burnt out, it's just a feeling. It's the suffering that comes from clinging. Um, so I wouldn't conceptualize it either. Just if whatever you feel, note that. when you, If you feel tired, if you feel stressed, if you feel sad or depressed, all of these things, maybe you weren't mindful of them during the practice. So you have to... Well, and, and in the beginning, there's lots of imbalances. Like meditation can be so messy in the beginning. 
that you're really just learning. It's like trying to learn uh, how to play a sport or something like golf or tennis. Half the time you don't even hit the ball. So uh, it's hard to say without knowing where you're at, but burned out is just a concept. You have to be more accurate in describing what's actually happening and, and stop relating it to something that happened before. Try and just take it as it is when you feel it and you note it. How do I deal with heavy feeling sankharas coming up over all over my body? Usually I practice anapanasati, but I wonder if there is any way to help break up the tension. It's so dense now. Yeah, well, heavy feelings aren't sankharas. I know the tradition that you're probably practicing in uses this word a lot, and it's a very strange way to use it. I mean... I don't think it's being used wrong by the teachers, but it's strange that it becomes such a buzzword that heavy feelings are not sankharas. I mean, in one sense they are, but everything's a sankhara, so it's a use, it's a meaningless word in that sense because everything is a sankhara. Heavy feelings are heavy feelings. You calling them sankharas is problematic, and this is the issue I have with that tradition, is these things tend to become entities like you give life to this thing calling it a sankara as if that meant something it really doesn't mean anything sankara is everything is a sankara sabe sankara anicca anything that arises is a sankara that's that's one way of looking at it but normally the way this word would have meaning in in the way you're using it it wouldn't be the feelings sankaras are the fourth aggregate and that's not feelings feelings are the second aggregate vedana or they're even the first aggregate because sensations of actually it sounds like that's what you're talking about the first aggregate is uh, heaviness is a sort of a tension that you feel in, in the body um, and there can be hardness and softness and, and heat and cold those that's the first aggregate those aren't sankharas those are the other aggregates and and that why i'm harping on this is because when you use these words like this, is you give it a, you give it a meaning, you give it a, an entity, and that's problematic because it's not like that. These things are not things; they're experiences, and they arise and cease. This is a, an experience that you've gained temporarily, but it's hard to see that when you give it entity because you think it's a thing that's always there, and then you try to break it up. Um, and that's not the way reality works. Reality is not a thing you break up. Reality is a thing that comes and goes by itself. You trying to break it up or seeking help to break it up, break up the tension, thinking of it as dense, these are all problems. There, there's, this is a problematic way of relating to it. Seeing it as something problematic is a problem. Um, but you practice anapanasati, which probably means you're not practicing what we teach. It's usually not called anapanasati, even though it relates to the breath. So uh, I would recommend if you are coming to me with these questions that you read our booklet, maybe consider doing the at-home course, switching to practice according to our tradition, do walking as well as sitting. The walking can help a lot with such, um, not just such feelings, but also such obsessions with them because it, it forces you to be more flexible. But uh, ultimately, I guess the, the simple answer without all of that, that you have to without all of that, putting it on you to change your tradition, to practice the way we teach. I just say that there's nothing wrong with this. This is an experience of feeling. It's impermanent suffering and non-self. It comes and goes. And making a problem out of it is problematic. So you have to note that as well, the disliking of it, the worry about it, 
that sort of thing. I'm very new to Buddhism and meditation. When focusing on breath, the mind goes from breath to other distractions. Should one focus on the distraction until able to focus again on the breath? So in our tradition, we don't focus exactly on the breath. We focus on the stomach rising and falling, which is basically the breath. Breath is just an idea, right? What are you referring to? Well, the reality is there's going to be experiences, and one of those experiences based on the breath is the expanding and contracting of the abdomen. So um, we focus on that, and the answer to your question really is yes. We would then focus on the distraction. If it's a thought, we would say thinking, thinking. If it's an emotion, we might say liking, liking, or disliking, dislike. If it's pain, we might say pain, pain. You can read it all in our booklet. That's a good place to start. You can also do an at-home course if you're really interested. It's all free. Is there any benefit in fasting? I've been thinking of doing it. Fasting is a physical thing. Um, with physical things, the best way to look at it is to do something simple, to, to stay reasonable, to not go to extremes physically. So the Buddha taught to eat enough to survive and to do that regularly, to not do anything extreme because it's just physical and if you rely on that if you think if you put meaning in that and think it has some benefit or some meaning you're barking up the wrong tree you're just going to be misled and misguided and warp and get cultivate warped views this is just a physical thing not a it's not the path to freedom is depression a real experience or is this a conceptual extrapolation? So there is a real experience that you might call depression. One issue with the word depression is it usually um, describes something over time. Like you don't have a moment of feeling depressed. I mean, you sort of do, but we kind of think of it as something, I don't know, if you think of it as something over time, that can be somewhat problematic and conceptual. Like if you say, I'm depressed, I have clinical depression. There are moments of sadness or moments of disliking, and that's much more accurate. If you tell it like it is, if you if you just label it as disliking when it comes up or sadness when it comes up, you'll get a much better sense of what's actually going on and, and you'll be able to break it up much better. It won't become this habitual rut that you get stuck in. But if you feel depressed in any moment, you can note depressed. It's, a, it's not wrong. It's a fine note. Words are, are, are imprecise all the, all the time. We're, we're just trying to get as precise as we can reasonably without obsessing over that. Just find a word that applies to what you experience and, and note that when it's gone, move on to whatever's next and come back to the rising and falling when you can. Is socializing inherently unwholesome? It is inseparable from the realm of concepts, reifying self, therefore delusion. Will this always proliferate ignorance and bad karma? Well, socializing is again a physical thing. You're describing a physical reality and the answer is always going to depend on your mental reality. 
socializing does imply some mental inclination to interact and engage. So we use the word social, the word be, you know, socializing. It implies that or it evokes that. So generally it's going to be problematic, but not because of the act of socializing, but because of the inclination, the desire, the liking, the excitement, even the disliking, right? The 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 emotions involved with socializing that are often unwholesome and the delusion for sure but the, this word could be used in a positive way if you socialize with the right people and at the right time and in the right amount if you ask questions like this social gathering we could call this socializing we probably wouldn't but it describes the same sort of thing here we are kind of in a way socializing though we wouldn't use that word most likely not likely anyone would describe what's happening here as socializing. Uh, usually the word is problematic, again, for the reason that it usually describes some emotional involvement. And, but those are the issue, not the actual engagement. Concepts are also not necessarily problematic as long as you understand them as conceptual and don't mistake them as being reality and don't, don't react to them. Why does action based on craving cause rebirth, but chanda, wholesome intention, does not cause rebirth? Chanda is just a word. It can refer to, I don't even know if it would refer to something wholesome. Chanda is uh, ethically invariable, I think. It, it can exist in ethical minds and unethical minds as well, unwholesome and wholesome. So Chanda is not, not a wholesome Jadasika, if I'm not mistaken. Where's the Abhidhamma people? But yeah, Chanda can be, there's Kama Chanda, which is unwholesome, and there's something you might call Dhamma Chanda, which is inclination towards the Dhamma. Um... What causes rebirth is yeah the the liking or the want the wanting let's say chanda chanda is uh, is just one of these things that makes the mind interested in something. Yeah, I'm told by our Abhidhamma expert that chanda is ethically variable. That's what I need. I need experts in, in my Discord chat so that I can ask questions and they can look things up for me. Well done. Thank you. Why are unvaccinated individuals not allowed to attend meditation courses at your meditation center? So... I think recently it's changing a little bit, but um, up until recently there was a global pandemic that you may have been aware of, and the doctor's advice, our, our medical advice, with a lot of documentation to back it up and uh, support from the overwhelming majority of the medical community, was that um, unvaccinated people should not be uh, 
brought into such an environment. So we followed medical advice. It's changing, I think, a little bit. Apparently there's a, I don't know, we'll have to consult a doctor and maybe we'll consult the medical professionals and see what the consensus is. But uh, one of the issues I had was the people's uh, stubborn refusal to get vaccinate, vaccines when, you know, we've been getting vaccines for decades and that stubborn refusal is, is concerning because it's, uh, it's a clinging, it's an attachment. I would recommend people to listen to what the doctors say, listen to what the medical professionals say and stop worrying so much about what might happen. Just go with what what is advised. There's nothing against, it's not against the Dhamma to get vaccine, vaccinated, so do it. Just do it. Stop clinging. Is it better to hurry through our daily tasks in order to get an hour of meditation in, or should we prioritize being mindful in our tasks, even if it eats into our formal practice time? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, well, you can hurry mindfully, so maybe that's a way of having your cake and eating it too. But uh, yeah, you shouldn't sacrifice mindfulness. It would That's not beneficial. If you're able to be mindful during your tasks, you're already doing what you need to do. You don't have to worry about how much time you're doing. Except if you're doing the at-home meditation course, you do have to fulfill that formal one hour a day. Up going up to two hours a day. So, uh, but if if you have to hurry in order to do that, if you have to be unmindful in order to do that, you might just want to postpone the practice, postpone the course. Yeah, hurrying hurrying isn't the issue. It's the unmindfulness that is often associated with hurrying. So, if you can do something quickly but mindfully, that's fine. I got asked what we mean by mind when I told others about our practice, as in curing sickness in the mind or sending the mind to the stomach. I was unsure. Any advice on how to answer? Mind is moments. Mind is is the... Yeah, just a second. Yes, there's still a phone here. Um, right, so mind is the aspect of experience that knows, that is aware. So take the stomach, for example. The stomach rises and falls 24 hours a day, we assume. Now, we don't know for sure, but every time we look, it's rising or falling, right? So it is happening. But we only have the experience of it when the mind is there. That's what the mind is. So mind is this... Um, aspect of experience that is aware. The stomach rising is another aspect of experience that happens but isn't aware. So the stomach itself isn't aware of anything. The rising and falling occur without any awareness. That's why we don't experience it. Mind is the thing that allows us to experience. So sending the mind to the stomach is just a colloquial way of saying, um, be, having the awareness of it. Because if you're in your head 
saying rising, falling, but your mind didn't ever experience the rising or the falling, that wouldn't be mindful. That's that's all that means. Uh, curing sickness in the mind is just another expression. It it um, it's inaccurate, but we say these sorts of things. We we conceptualize the mind. The reality is that you prevent you you destroy by cure would be completely eradicate the potential for an arising an experience arising that was um associated with anger or or greed or delusion i mean there could be no experience of the stomach rising let's say that was angry or greedy wanting it to be this way or that or deluded thinking it was me or it's mine or that sort of thing these things it's a little more complicated than that you have to study the abhidhamma if you want to know exactly what's supposed to be going on but these are just conceptual mind is really just a momentary thing that arises and ceases with the experience did we run out of questions one more bunte one more all right you all better have your questions ready or else we're done for the day we're going to end early there's no more is working at an online gambling business counter to right livelihood? Um, I mean, I don't think it's listed as one of the uh, wrong livelihoods. The working at a business is often you can get away with it if you're not actually in, depending on what you're doing, right? And it's... Um, it's complicated because businesses are complicated. Like if you're just an accountant at an online gambling business and you just do the books, you're, you're pretty safe. I mean, I wouldn't want to associate with that. And you can kind of feel concerned about the fact that you're um, supporting such stuff. And, and, you know, online gambling is not really wholesome. Gambling is one of the four abayamukha, the, the doorways to ruin so it causes ruin for a lot of people, and that's why this is so. Even even outside of Buddhist circles, online gambling is kind of controversial, and there's a lot of concern about it because of how ruining gambling can be for people, and uh, how it, you're not really providing any service, right? I mean, okay, theoretically, if it's just fun gambling, it's for f entertainment, then it's entertainment, which is problematic, but not really horrible. Um, but most gambling isn't like that. It's it's predatory, and you're you're not there to make people feel good. You're there to steal from people. Well, not steal, but take people's money. Um, take more than they they want to give. See, the problem with gambling is people don't want to give you their money. They want you to give them give them your money. So if I sell pots, um, there's a there's a trade going on. People want to give this money and get the pots but in gambling that's not really the case anyway not to go too deep into gambling it's not horrible it's not like killing or anything but it is a bad thing and so being involved with that is problematic if you're actually the owner of an online gambling business i would say it's problematic there's a lot of unwholesomeness potential there and you have to ignore a lot of the cruel aspects of uh, taking more money than people want to give and manipulating people to give more than they want and that sort of thing. Gambling is a sad, sad thing. 
but uh, technically it's again there's much worse things and there's things that are enumerated as being much worse like um, killing for a living stealing for a living that sort of thing selling weapons selling poison selling drugs selling alcohol selling selling living beings trafficking humans that sort of thing Can we meditate lying down or with eyes open? You can meditate lying down. We do lying or sitting with our eyes closed. But lying is fine. You can just say rising, falling when you're lying. Walking meditation is also done with eyes open. But it's the only one standing. I would say you're better off closing the eyes as well. How can one console a person who had their baby, but it died before birth? Why could such a thing happen? Well, yeah, console is maybe not the right word. Help a person come to terms with or, or uh, readjust their perspective on the situation so they're to free themselves from the suffering of it rather than console them and try to help encourage them in, in the practice of mindfulness to be present with it to not deny it or ignore the sadness um, just to help them to be mindful of it sadness is so uh, so why could such a thing happen i know this not isn't what you're asking but let's ask first why could such a sadness happen that's not likely what you're asking but such a thing happen could be uh, why could such a thing as their grief happen? It's a question you probably don't don't ever think to ask, but it is a much better question, and it's an important question because the the grief and the sadness had a cause, and the cause wasn't the death; that was just a catalyst for the the, the inevitable grief. But grief comes from from not getting what you want. It comes from the wanting, the attachment, and. So through mindfulness, you start to be a little more uh, independent. So change doesn't affect you as much. Because the truth is, it happened. The most important aspect of it is not why it happened, but that it happened. And so acting like it, it, it's there's something wrong is is foolish. You get no benefit out of it. And it's not to trivialize it. Again, the point is you can't stop grieving. You can't just turn it off. It has a cause, and the cause is the attachment. And there's nothing that's going to make that go away. That that cause had power. Now, mindfulness will, yes, it can. There is something that makes it go away, and that's mindfulness. But that's just by changing your perspective so you're no longer attached to that thing, so that you no longer ra react with yearning yearning to have your baby or yearning for the baby that you never had and that sort of thing. As for why death, uh, miscarriage in this case, why it happens, sometimes it's karmic. There's lots of reasons, but one, uh, one very big one is likely karma. And you don't know what the karma of the being was that was coming into existence. Lots of reasons. They could have been a murderer in their past life or... Or, or other reasons, you know, it, it may have been just some complicated karma where they only were 
um, going to be in the womb for a short time, and when they passed from that from the womb, they could be go. They could go to a better place because of the complexity of of life. I mean, it's quite complex. There was a story of a woman who was reborn in hell for seven days, and after seven days, she was a human, a queen actually, and she was she did something very um, manipulative. And as a result, she felt very guilty about it and died and went to hell just for seven days. And after seven days, she was reborn in heaven because of all the good things that she did. Seven days. So that kind of thing could happen in the womb for sure. I have a social phobia, and every time I am around people, my mind automatically watches the people around me but I am not watching them directly. My question is, what should I note? I don't understand what you mean by watches. Your mind watches them? Like, like I mean, the only way that could happen is if you were had some extrasensory perception where your mind was, maybe you had clairvoyance where you could see things with your eyes closed because you're not watching them directly. Or you mean you're looking at something else and, and your mind fixates on what you see, the, the people that you're not watching, so you actually do see them. and you just Still just not seeing. Uh, but probably there's something you're not mentioning explicitly here is around the phobia. You have social phobia, so do you not feel worry or fear? So that would be important. If you have phobia, it's most likely, I mean, by very definition, you should have some fear or some worry. And that would be much more important to note. But you can also, you know, as important to note, you should also note the seeing. Note any frustration you have that you don't want to look, but your mind automatically fixates on the, the vision of them. Is it recommended to practice samatha meditation directly before practicing vipassana meditation? Not in this tradition. Samatha meditation is a term we use to, we reserve to refer explicitly to those meditations that are not, um, that, that are not involved in the cultivation of vipassana. So we don't recommend to practice them first. Now, it's not to say, I guess that's too strong to say that we don't recommend. We don't teach to practice them. We also don't recommend them, literally. We don't, I would never recommend you say, oh, you should do this. So yeah, we don't recommend. But the way you phrase this, it's it can be a valid path that is beneficial and, and valid and, and good. So the samatha is beneficial. Even though it's beneficial, we still don't recommend it because we would argue that it's more beneficial to start practicing Satipatthana Vipassana directly. Is it okay to be aware of the stomach as it rises and falls during meditation? I find when I say the words rising, falling internally, I go on autopilot and can become distracted. So that's an important part of why we're doing this. We want to see uh, what happens when you are, well, we want to see how your mind works, what, what habits your mind has. We want to see your mind's inclination to go on autopilot. You trying to just be aware describes 
I mean, it implies that there's something better about that that somehow solves your problem of getting distracted allows you to not get distracted we don't want that we want to see your mind and how it works so if your mind is inclined to get distracted we want to see that we don't want to repress it we don't want to find some trick to stop it from happening trying to stop things from happening and practicing in such a way so that they don't happen is problematic is harmful is unwholesome it's going to lead to greater attachment greater ego, greater sense of control, um, controlling, well, controlism, I don't know if there's such a word, but the belief or the inclination to control. You have to let go of that and stop trying to control and start trying to see and be flexible. If your mind gets distracted, you know distracted, distracted. It's hard and it's meant to be hard. You have to allow for it to be hard and Notice when you want to make it easier, because wanting to make it easier is a wanting. It's, it's an attachment. Dante, we've crossed the hour. We have one question left in the top tier. Do you have time to answer? Go ahead. Some drinks contain very little alcohol, kombucha, and orange juice. One would have to drink so much that the stomach evacuates before any noticeable effect of drunkenness. Are these foods problematic? Orange juice contains alcohol? I didn't know that. Uh, kombucha, I knew, has alcohol in it. And if you can taste the alcohol, smell the alcohol, or taste, smell, or see, I don't know how you'd see it, but... Um, taste, smell, or see, I think, are the three factors. If any of those is true, then it's technically breaking the precept. I mean, there's other things you can drink if there's if there's something that... Orange juice, you could never taste alcohol unless it was actually fermented. I'm surprised there is any alcohol in it at all. But uh, I don't know about kombucha, whether you could taste the alcohol. If you could, then, yeah, it's against the rules. And just do take something else instead. You won't die if you don't have it. I don't know if kombucha. I've had kombucha before, and I think it might not have enough to taste or smell. Thank you, Bonte, for taking the extra time. That's all the questions we're prepared to ask today. Okay, thank you all for your questions. Thank you for your help, Chris, Jim, Edit. Wish everyone peace, happiness, and freedom from suffering. Have a good week. Sadhu. Sadhu.